This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Listening to All the Books, a weekly show of recommendations and enthusiasm regarding the week's new book releases. This is episode 292, and today we are talking about books being released on January 5th, 2021, and more. I'm Liberty Hardy, here with Danica Ellis, and we're coming to you from BookRiot.com. Danica, first Hello. show of the new year. That's exciting. Yeah, so exciting. Um, I spelled books wrong. I spelled books wrong in the notes uh, for the opening, so we're off to a great start. We're talking about boosks. <laughs> That's still 2020 talking there. It's it's going to be so much smoother later. <laughs> yeah. We are technically recording this. It's December 23rd, 2020. Mm-hmm. Book Riot shuts down for the holidays. So we're getting some work done early. But I'm excited like it is January 5th because right off the bat, so many books out today. Yeah. After like the lull for the holidays and like the end of the year, Mm -hmm. it's always great to like hit the ground running with new books. It's really exciting. Yeah. This year has been so weird with book releases where it's really like feast and famine, where they all seem to be bunched together from when they were delayed. So we end up Mm -hmm. with one day with every single book coming out and then a bunch of days with almost nothing coming out. I'm excited to say that I have already read. I don't know, I think like 50 of the titles coming out in 2021. Wow. Between all my jobs and Mm -hmm. uh, I've loved almost all of them. Oh, that's good to hear. I think it's going to be a great year for books. Things are looking up. Yeah, I mean, they have to, right? (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean, they don't have to, but uh, I would like them to. I'm asking (laughs) nicely. Please, please start looking up. So uh, we are going to talk about some of those awesome books. But first, we're going to hear from a sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by The Dial Press, publishers of The Prospects by K.T. Hoffman. The pressure cooker of minor league baseball leads to major chemistry in this exhilarating, sexy, and triumphant Rivals to Lovers debut romance. Gene Ionescu is the first openly trans player in professional baseball. He has nearly everything he's ever let himself dream of. That is, until Luis Estrada, Gene's former teammate and current rival, gets traded to the Beavers. Now, Gina Louise can't manage a civil conversation off the field or a competent play on it, but in the close confines of dugout benches and roadie buses, they begrudgingly rediscover a comfortable rhythm. As the two grow closer, the tension between them turns electric and their chemistry spills past the confines of the stadium. So this is one of the first adult rom-coms published by a major publishing house centering a gay trans man by a gay trans man. It also has ADHD and anxiety representation and some joyful, heartfelt moments. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to The Dial Press, publishers of The Prospects by KT Hoffman for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by W.W. Norton and Company Incorporated. 
So Negative Space by Jillian Linden follows a week in the life of an English teacher at a New York private school. At home, her children ask constant questions about mortality and her husband offers occasional counsel between Zoom calls. At school, something happens. She accidentally witnesses an ambiguous, possibly inappropriate interaction between a teacher and a student. But how can she be sure of what she saw? Negative Space is a portrait of a woman caught between the pressures of what's normal and what isn't, and examines what we owe the people who depend on us in a fractured and indifferent world. It's a debut novel and a short novel. It's perfect if you want something quick and easy to carry around, but it's also thought-provoking. It takes place during the pandemic, but it's not pandemic-focused, and it really just looks at everyday anxieties and low-threat situations that have high consequences. So make sure to check out Negative Space by Jillian Linden. And thanks again to WW Norton and Company Incorporated for sponsoring this episode. Okay, my first pick today is Outlawed by Anna North. It is an awesome feminist Western, just the book that you've been waiting for. It's a like true grit meets a little of The Handmaid's Tale meets a little bit of The Crucible. It's set in an alternate United States in the Dakotas in 1894, which, if you've been listening to the show for any amount of time, you know is like my favorite time period to read books about. It's like the, you know, Wild West in in the United States. Uh, So this is an alternate United States in which in 1830, a flu hit the country and nine out of every 10 people died of the flu. So now it's 1896 and there's been this like law that the country needs to be repopulated because of the the loss of all the people. And it's kind of interesting because the new laws are a bit progressive for that time period, like what didn't actually exist back then, but they're also quite puritanical in other respects. And so the rule is that women must have children. And if they don't have children, or if they're unable to have children, they're called the barren, and they are hanged as witches. And people who are trying to get pregnant and can't get pregnant will, like, blame these women. Um, Or if they lose a baby, they blame these women. But women also have more rights, kind of. If you have three children, you are now able to do whatever you want. It's expected that you're going to, like, get married at a very young age. Like, girls are getting married at, like, 15, 16, 17. But as soon as you have three children, you're able to divorce your husband and do whatever you want. And uh, sex before marriage is also acceptable. And they actually teach sex ed to the girls and boys when they're young and explain to them, like, you know, it's all about getting pregnant and here's how you get pregnant and here's why it's important. But it can backfire because if you start having sex before you're married and you don't get pregnant... They can label you as barren before you've even, like, started your life. So the main character of this book is Ada. She's 17 years old at the beginning of this book. She has three sisters. She lives with them and her mother, who is a midwife. Um, Her mother is very science-oriented. She doesn't believe in witchcraft, but she has to, like, tread carefully because she doesn't want to be accused of being a witch herself if she says, you know, like, there's no witches here. It's just the German measles. That's why, you know, people got sick and that's why these babies died. And so she, but she has to, like, be very careful what she says. And Ada is studying to be a midwife like her mother. And she gets married to a young man that she has had her eye on for a long time. And after a year of being married, she still has not gotten pregnant. And now his mom is 
worried and she thinks you know things are going on like she might be a witch and because like as i said you know if you don't have children they automatically start calling you a witch Uh, so after a year of this and no pregnancy she is indeed accused of being a witch and her mother makes it so that she can leave she gets away from this town and she winds up living with the hole in the wall gang which is a band of notorious outlaws comprised of people who are also mostly the Baron, and they live in the middle of the desert, kind of this area where like no one would think to look for them. And they make their livings robbing stagecoaches and pulling off heists, and they're very famous. They're led by the kid. The kid is the the leader of the Hole in the Wall gang, and she starts to like learn how to be a criminal. Basically, they teach her the ways. They teach her how to shoot. They teach her how to ride a horse. Meanwhile, you know, word has gotten back that the sheriff is looking for her. Because she left town and, you know, it's not acceptable to them. And she's also worried that if the sheriff stops looking for her, he might turn his attention to her mother. So she worries constantly about her family that she left behind. Well, also uh, learning how to take care of these people that she's living with. You know, she she says, like, I can dress wounds and I can, you know, deliver babies. Not that that's going to happen, but I have all these hidden talents or like actual talents. But she also really wants to learn about infertility. Like, that's her main interest is, like, why does this happen? Because she doesn't believe in witchcraft and she doesn't think, you know, witches have put curses on people. And she's really interested. She wants to get to this certain town where this doctor is and learn about it. Um, So is she going to live the gang heist life? Like, is she going to hang out with them and rob stagecoaches? And because she's becoming very attached to a lot of these people. Or is she going to figure out, like, how to make her way back to her family and take care of them? I really loved the characters in this book. Ada is wonderful. She's also, she has like strengths and weaknesses. You know, I really loved how they didn't, the gang doesn't coddle her um, when she messes up, but they also like just say like, this this is what you did wrong and this is what you need to do. And I love the use of science versus ignorance and fear. Like how her mother is like this, these are the actual reasons why these things are happening. Whereas everyone else is running around going, witches, witches, witches. It's also kind of sad because it's not far off from where we are today with women's reproductive rights. I will give content warnings for violence, death, sexual assault, depictions of child death, death of women during childbirth, and loss of pregnancies. It's so fantastic. I always feel bad because I always give the content warnings so that I'm like, it was really great after I've just said all these really sad things. But it's just excellent. It's called Outlawed, and it's by Anna North. That sounds so good. I also have a historical book as my first pick, and that is The Heiress, The Revelations of Anne de Burr by Molly Greeley. This is labeled a Pride and Prejudice novel. It's not exactly a retelling, a prequel, or a sequel. Instead, it fills in the story from one of the minor characters of the book, Anne de Burr. I have to admit, and I know it will lose me some audience respects, but I've never been a huge Pride and Prejudice fan. I have read it, and I've read Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. I don't know if that counts, but it never really clicked with me. For some reason, though, I am always interested in Pride and Prejudice retellings, especially queer ones. So when I heard that there was a lesbian literary retelling of Pride and Prejudice, I had to try it. In case you forgot, because I definitely didn't remember this character, Anne is Mr. Darcy's fiancé at the beginning of Pride and Prejudice. 
Their marriage has been planned since they were infants. Anne, in the original book, is a sickly young woman who doesn't leave a strong impression. This novel gives her center stage and makes her a compelling and empathetic character. So Anne was a fussy baby, and she was prescribed laudanum drops, which seemed to work. She continued to be lethargic and delicate, and when she missed her drops, she had horrible reactions, shaking, sweating, sensory hallucinations, etc. So she stayed on these drops her whole childhood. So this is a kid who's basically been drugged on opium her entire life, because anytime they try to stop, she goes into withdrawals, which they interpret as her sickness getting worse. So obviously, this leaves her listless and easily overwhelmed, and she's never known anything other than this. She's never known what it was like to not be on laudanum. You might remember the character of her mother better, Catherine de Burr. She definitely leaves a strong impression. She is controlling and has very strong opinions, not allowing Anne to do anything that might strain her, like learning to play an instrument or reading novels. She is more like an object in her own life. She is often ignored or pitied by guests, and even in her 20s, her mother treats her like a small child. So she spends her days mostly just watching the people around her and not really able to participate. Although she has no agency in her day-to-day life, she is the heiress of their estate, which is extremely rare. She doesn't have to marry to keep the land. She loves the house and the grounds, and she feels like it loves her back. She can hear it whispering to her after she's had her drops. But she also lives under the shadow of this estate that will one day be hers, and she feels completely incapable of managing it. She can't even manage a conversation. The only person who really treats her like a human being is her governess, who tries to tell her that she is capable of more and tries to warn her about the possible dangers of her medicine. But she is kind of trapped by her job and not wanting to lose her job and offend Catherine by saying too much. Anne gets a crush on the governess, naturally, but the governess leaves and is replaced by a bland woman who acts as a puppet of her mother. Eventually, in her 20s, Anne begins to internalize what the governess told her and realizes that the drop she's been depending on may be the cause and not the cure for how she feels. Impulsively aware that her life is in danger, she dumps her medicine and flees to her cousin's house in London. Her cousin is John and one of the few people who has actually treated her like a person with agency. There, Anne tries to, first of all, basically detox from laudanum and then learn how to be independent and how to fit in. This is also where the book turns into a lesbian historical romance. It's a little bit Sarah Waters and it is really lush writing and not what I would have expected from the beginning of the book, but it is the kind of excruciating historical FF slow burn you love to see. This is a book that fits together with Pride and Prejudice, but could also completely stand on its own. If you pulled out all of the Pride and Prejudice references, this would still be a fantastic book. It manages to be both a Victorian historical novel and feature a drug addict's lesbian main character with no apparent clash between those ideas. And again, that is The Heiress by Molly Greeley. My next pick 
really drove home the point that it is a new year because I read this book at the beginning of the summer and I feel like I've been waiting forever to talk about it. And now all of a sudden I'm like, it's already time to talk about this book. It is The Excellent Picnic in the Ruins by Todd Peterson. It's set on the Utah-Arizona border and it's kind of like No Country for Old Men meets Northern Exposure. It's a crime novel, but it's also more than that. It has an eccentric cast of characters. It starts with these two brothers who are kind of inept, but also kind of like sociopathic, dangerous criminals. And they are hired to steal some maps from a collector. But the job goes wrong. They bungle it. And now their quick in and out crime spree is on the radar of the police. So the police are looking for them. And there's also Sophia, who is an anthropologist who has just moved to the area. She has been sent to study the effect of tourism on national monuments. There are a lot of historic sites near where the, where she is stationed, and she's studying like what happens to the land when all these people come to look at it all the time. And uh, she accidentally comes across these two brothers and sees the map that they have and realizes that they have something important. And also they realize that she realizes that they have the maps. And so now they're going to be looking for her. And meanwhile, on top of all of this, because the brothers bungled the job, their boss has sent a fixer who is way scarier than anyone else to come and take care of them and like clean up after them. Like I said, it's a crime novel, but it's also so funny. I laughed out loud reading this. So many times. It falls in that really awesome spot that I love of, like, psychotic, murdery, madcap hilarity. Uh, If you like the Coen brothers, if you like Elmer Leonard, if you like William Boyle, these are perfect comparisons, I think. Like, it just made me laugh and laugh and laugh. And I really enjoyed the characters. There are a lot of characters, which is what made me think of, like, the northern exposure aspect. You know, it is this small town and everybody knows each other. And... It's also a really good look at, like, who owns the past? Who owns these artifacts? Who do these actually belong to? Who does this land belong to? I think it would make a great movie. I would love to see this as a movie. Content warning for cultural appropriation and theft, violence, and depictions of murder and suicide. That is Picnic in the Ruins by Todd Peterson. I like that you have a little theme of crime groups and history going in your first two picks. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> I didn't mean to do it, but I mean, <clears throat> yes, I absolutely picked it that way. <laughs> yeah, you pick all your books to have a, a perfect <laughs> theme running through each episode. And if you haven't noticed, that's just your fault as a listener. You should have been <laughs> picking up on it. Uh, now I feel like I have to read a book like while you're talking about your next one that fits with my theme. <laughs> I could probably do it. Yeah, I mean, why not, right? (laughs) Keep it going. Well, my next pick does not follow any particular theme. It's After the Rain by Nettie Okorafor, adapted by John Jennings and illustrated by David Brame. This was originally an Okorafor short story called On the Road, which has been adapted into a graphic novel format. I love Nettie Okorafor's books because they're always so surprising and thought-provoking. She writes African futurism and African jujuism, which offers such a refreshing perspective on speculative fiction. I'm also really glad that she specifies those labels because otherwise I would find this very difficult to categorize. 
It feels part horror, part fantasy, but neither really fit. African Jujuism makes more sense. This is about Chioma, a Nigerian-American police officer from Chicago. She has just arrived in Nigeria to visit her grandmother for two weeks. It has been pouring rain, uncharacteristic for this time of year, and almost immediately after it suddenly stops, there is a knock on the door. She answers it to find a boy standing on the doorstep, his head a gruesome mess of exposed brain. She slams the door shut, but feels compelled to check on this kid. When she opens the door again, he is laughing and says, you too, and then tag your it and touches her hand. She feels as if her hand has burst into flame, but when her grandmother comes into the room, her hand is fine and the boy is gone. Her grandmother scolds her for answering the door, saying that she should have known better and that she is Americanized now, and they look for the boy to no avail. Chioma becomes convinced that there's something monstrous in the house, though, something that she can sense and smell. And as the days go on, she becomes more convinced of this. Lizards seem to gather any time she stays in place for any amount of time. We see shadows lurking behind her, and she grows increasingly paranoid. Meanwhile, we see that her grandmother and auntie seem to know what's happening, but they aren't sharing. They're just talking between themselves. At first, this reads almost like folklore or a campfire story, but it's mixed with more character background and detail than I would expect from that story. And of course, it's distinctly Nigerian. The art style is interesting and unsettling. Chioma often has a bug-eyed look of terror on her face, and sometimes we see her horrified reaction, but we don't see what she's seeing to provoke it. What really stood out to me, though, what was what was happening outside the panels. There are these intricate, ornate borders around the panels made up of creeping foliage and skulls and sometimes just jagged, unsettling lines. And that really adds to the unease and claustrophobia. They seem to be surrounding Chioma and sometimes crowding her out of the panel. Because this is a standalone graphic novel, I don't want to give anything away, but this took several surprising turns and I couldn't put it down. I do want to give a content warning for body horror, though, if that's something that you want to avoid. But if you are looking for a creepy and thought-provoking read, definitely pick this one up. And that graphic novel is After the Rain by Nettie Okorafor. Okay, my next pick today is Black Buck by Matteo Escarapor. It is a dark comedic novel about a young man named Darren. He's a 22-year-old black man living with his mom. He works at Starbucks. He's graduated college. He's trying to figure out what he wants to do with his education, if he can do anything with his with his education. And he has this chance encounter with this hotshot businessman named Rhett Daniels. He's the CEO of like the hottest startup in New York City called Someone. And he sees something in Darren. He he likes how he talks. He likes how he interacts with people. And he invites him to join his sales force up on the 36th floor. Now, this is a huge step for Darren because you know, he lives in this very small home with his mom. He's been taking care of her. She's ill. And, you know, it's a huge increase in pay. So, like, why, like, really, it's a no-brainer. Like, why not take this, you know? He doesn't even understand what the company really does, but, you know, just says, yes, I'm just going to say yes to this. 
Of course, immediately, things are a little off. When Darren starts work at the company, he is the only black person on the sales force, and he's also subjected, along with some other new employees, to something they call Hell Week, which is where basically they're just humiliated and made to do ridiculous things for like a whole week. And it's kind of like a dare almost. Darren feels like he's being dared to, are you going to quit or are you going to play? Like, can you be one of us or, you know, are you going to, are you just going to walk away from this? And he decides he wants to play. He wants to, he's seen like what the wealth can get him and he wants to make money and he wants to, you know, do good things. So he becomes kind of ruthless and he starts calling himself Buck and has this like new cutthroat persona and starts playing like corporate politics. He's really like leaning into it, you know, so much so that like his girlfriend and his family are like, who are you? You know, but he thinks like this is this is the way I feel like the Mandalorian. This is the way. But basically what happens is that he realizes early on that there is no way for him to win this game. So he's going to change the rules. Uh, And then the book becomes a lot darker. It's very smart. It's very funny. It's very topical. It reminded me a lot of Sorry to Bother You, which is one of the best movies that I've watched in the last several years. I highly recommend it if you haven't seen it. And it's just a look at racism in corporate America. And it's it's excellent. Uh, I will give content warnings for racialized violence and language, physical violence, depictions of murder, suicide, and prolonged illness. That is Black Buck by Matteo Escarapur. And now we are going to hear from our next sponsor. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, Danica, you are up. Yeah, my next pick is Goldie Vance, The Hocus Pocus Hoax by Lilian Rivera. So Goldie Vance began as a comic series, which is excellent. Highly recommend it. But now it has this middle grade novel series as well. Goldie Vance is a 16-year-old girl who works as a part-time valet, part-time detective at a resort her father manages. She is the assistant to the hotel's detective, which I guess is a thing, and aspires to be a full-time detective when she's older. It has a 1950s feel, though I don't think they ever really specify the time period. I could be wrong about that. But Goldie is the plucky heroine we expect from a girl detective, except that this one is a queer girl of color, which is great. I love the comics, so I had to see how the novel versions compare. Although the main character is 16, she appears to be a little younger, which I think matches the 1950s aesthetic and definitely makes this work as a middle grade novel. When I worked in the children's department of my local bookstore, I often wished there were more middle grade and YA mysteries. They are very popular for the six to eight year old set, and then they inexplicably disappear. So I'm glad to see that this will help fill that niche. I was a bit worried about whether the queer relationship would be included in this middle grade version of the story. The comics are all ages, but could easily be read by teens as well. But happily, it's actually a big part of the plot of this volume. 
A conference of magicians is happening at the hotel, and the stakes are high. The intimidating owner is demanding that everything goes smoothly, because if this is a repeat event, it will be very profitable. Unfortunately, three of the waiters get food poisoning, and Goldie and a few of her friends at the hotel have to fill in. Meanwhile, Goldie is trying to plan the perfect first date with Diane, who you might remember from the comic series. If you read that, she has kind of a James Dean look going and is very cool. Unfortunately, Goldie's been forced to be a server that night and has to cancel. And when they reschedule, the restaurant has been reserved for a special event. Goldie invites Diane to come to some of the magician performances happening at the hotel, which she happily accepts, but that's not the end of her first date complications. Someone is sabotaging the magician's performances, and she has to figure out the culprit, all while the son of the celebrity magician keeps following her around and telling her how to better do her job. Was I proud of myself for keeping up with the middle grade mysteries clues? Yes. I'm not usually a mystery reader because I am terrible at keeping track of details, so apparently middle grade mysteries are at my level. I won't comment on the mystery structure itself because it seems silly to critique whether or not a mystery for 10-year-olds is sufficiently complex for a reader triple that age. I did think this translated well into the novel format, though, and I hope this is a long-running series. This is technically the second book in the series, not counting comics, but you don't need to have read any of the other Goldie Vance books before this one. It's a self-contained story. My only complaint is that I believe the finished copy will have a comics page before each chapter, and my review copy did not have those yet, so that's obviously very sad, but I'm sure that they will be great. If you like the kind of plucky girl detective idea... Definitely give this to kids in your life. I'm sure that they will really enjoy it. And that title again is Goldie Vance, The Hocus Pocus Hoax by Lillian Rivera. Okay. I am very excited about this last pick of mine, mostly because it's nonfiction. My goal in 2021 is to read more nonfiction. I would say 80% of, maybe even 90% of what I read in 2020 was fiction, I think, because everybody just wants to escape the world. Uh, So I'm looking forward to reading more nonfiction in 2021, and I'm off to a good start with To Be Honest by Michael Leviton. Now, if you like memoirs about unique families that make you feel better about your own relatives, this is the book for you. It's a really, really fascinating memoir. Michael Leviton was raised to always tell the truth. And now you're thinking, well, yeah, that's what my parents told me too, like always tell the truth. Because it sounds like a lie when he says, I always tell the truth. And people immediately think he's lying. But he always tells the truth. He was raised by his parents. It's, It's unusual parenting. And he's raised to like always they always tell him the truth they were like you're going to go get a shot and it's gonna hurt and you're gonna cry you know whereas most parents are like oh it's gonna be okay and look over here and everything's fine you know and they don't spare his feelings about anything you know they he plays chess with his dad all the time and his dad never lets him win they always say what they're thinking and you would be surprised to learn or maybe not that this doesn't make him very popular uh, his parents can't find jobs because they always tell the truth on their in their job interviews, which is, surprises, you know, the people who are interviewing them because uh, most people like, you know, lie a little bit to get into a job. So they eventually open their own business because they can't get hired. And this also later affects Michael and his siblings. They can't get jobs. And it also affects their ability to start relationships. 
And, you know, it, it's it's really hard for him. You know, he comes home from school and he's like, you know, the kids don't like me and I cry all the time because his parents tell him, like, if people are uncomfortable when you cry, like, that's their problem, you know? So he cries all the time. And, you know, I said this thing and they get mad at me and I don't understand it. You know, his dad has this expression. They're like, it's like the chocolate rule. Like, why does the fact that I don't like chocolate you know, affect your enjoyment of it if you like it. Like, that's what he always says to them. You know, he's like, it's their problem if they can't handle this. And and it's very interesting because a lot of what he says is is not wrong, but it makes it very hard for him. And so when Michael is in his 20s, he decides he's going to learn how to lie. And he's going to try and navigate that spot between being brutally honest and flat out lying. And in the beginning, he even tells you in the beginning of this memoir, I'm going to say and do some things in this book that you are not going to like, because it makes people uncomfortable to hear the truth, you know, and and he asks a lot of good questions, like, why are people more upset with him for pointing out that somebody at a party said something racist than they are upset at the person who said the racist thing? Or, you know, why do people say, like, they want to do something when they don't, or they're fine with the temperature in the room when they're cold, or, you know, just to, like, make other people feel better? I mean, he makes a lot of good points, like, these, like, social niceties that we all partake in. But, I I mean, I, like, half felt really sad for Michael Leviton while I was reading this, you know, because nobody liked him, and he didn't fit in, and he was just, you know, sad, and... But I also, like, cringed you know, half the time and was really glad that I was not around him because I would not be able to handle someone being brutally honest about anything. And it's just a really unique memoir about truth and lies and the social niceties that led us to where we are today. There's also an episode of This American Life with Ira Glass that features Michael Leviton, and you can hear him talk about this uh, because the fact that he always told the truth eventually got back to the producers of the show at NPR. And they're like, well, we obviously need to talk to somebody who says he always tells the truth. So that's also very interesting listening if you've read this book or if you want to check it out first before you read the book. It is called To Be Honest, and it is by Michael Leviton. Now, Danica, there was a little miscommunication. (laughs) Yeah. And you ended up reading this book, too, which is great. I did. Yeah. And I also really enjoyed it. I think it's such an interesting, like, anthropological view of communication. He has this almost alien perspective (laughs) where you get to look at what we do in everyday life and the kind of little lies we tell and decide which ones are worthwhile and make sense and which ones that he's right really don't make any sense at all and make things worse. But yeah, I found it such an interesting journey, especially realizing, I think at the beginning, I was like, yeah, they're right. We should tell the truth more. And then as it went on, I realized like, oh, this is also really unhealthy. It's just unhealthy in different ways. Yeah. I mean, it's just like he says, you know, like, he's like, I sound, he sounds like a hero being like, I always tell the truth. But then you just realize, like, everyone is so awkward and uncomfortable around him. Um, I do mm-hmm. want to give content warnings. Uh, if you are sensitive, there is discussion of trauma, gaslighting, racism, infidelity, and mental illness. I also want to say that uh, because reading is my superpower, I read another book this morning in case Danica did not finish because of the confusion, did not have another pick for today. 
So it was uh, Be Dazzled by Ryan LaSala, which is an amazingly fun YA novel about a young man who wants to win a cosplay costume competition. And he's going up against his ex-boyfriend who uh, learned everything he knows from him. So it's like competing against himself. It's so much fun. It took like the best parts of The Hunger Games for me, which are the costumes. <laughs> That's, what, I guess, what I took away from The Hunger Games were, like, the really cool costumes. <laughs> and it's just really charming and full of heart, and I loved it. So I wanted to give a shout-out to that one because it's out today, too. So my last pick, I intended to just read the beginning of it because in the confusion, I'd read the wrong book, but I figured I would at least get a good start on this one so I could talk about it. So that's Happily Ever Afters by Elise Bryant. And I meant to just read, I don't know, the first quarter, the first half. And then I accidentally stayed up until 3 a.m. reading this whole book. So if I am weird in this episode, blame this book because it's the reason that I didn't sleep. So Tessa is 16 years old and has just moved to a new city. That means leaving her best friend Caroline behind, but they still call each other all the time and they keep in touch through Tessa's writing. She is an author and Caroline is her biggest fan and her only reader. It started with fan fiction as a kid and now Tessa has two original romance stories going, which Caroline regularly bugs her to update. So it's a dream come true when she gets into the prestigious art school Chrysalis, where only the best artists, from dance to visual arts to culinary arts, are accepted. Her mother sent in her work and applied without Tessa knowing. The opportunity to get dedicated time to concentrate on her writing is incredible. Things aren't always smooth sailing between her and her family, though. Her 19-year-old brother, Miles, has disabilities, including athetoid cerebral palsy, which has made this a difficult transition for him. At her old neighborhood, their neighbors understood that they might get the occasional prank pizza sent to their house, and they knew that sometimes he might have a meltdown and that was nothing to be worried about. Here, Tessa is afraid, sometimes shamefully, about what her neighbors will think, but mostly about making sure that Miles is safe and enjoys his new routine. They are very close as siblings, and Tessa hates it when people treat him as a small child, a burden, or an angel. Still, it means that sometimes her mother has little patience for her own shortcomings, relying on Tessa to help out and be independent. Not all of the neighbors are too bad, it turns out. Across the street is Sam, another student at Chrysalis. He is a bit of a dork with his overgrown hair, cargo shorts, and Hawaiian shirts. But he's also kind and reliable and gives Tessa a ride to school every day. And more importantly, he is a baker supplying Tessa with mouth-watering goodies. There's just one problem with this new setup. As soon as she sets foot on this new overwhelming campus, she can't write in or outside of class. Days turn into weeks of her faking writing in class, unable to find her words. Caroline devises a plan. She will find inspiration by throwing herself headfirst into a romance using romance genre tropes. So Tessa needs to get stuck on an elevator with a boy, get caught in the rain, and clumsily fall into his arms. It's a ridiculous plan, but De Tessa is desperate, and she does have a huge crush. 
Nico is the son of one of the founders of the school and is practically royalty on campus. Sure, he already has an on-again, off-again girlfriend, and yes, some of his friends are not people she would choose to hang out with, but he's gorgeous and winks at her, and she needs a romantic interest to rekindle her love of writing. This follows and celebrates a lot of romance tropes, and as Tessa points out, there aren't a lot of cute romances with a black girl main character. It's also just as much about her family, her friendship with Caroline, and her writing, though. I haven't read a lot of romance novels, which I think added to this being an emotional roller coaster of a read for me. They really break down the heroine in that third act, hey? I wasn't sure how she could come back. Everything seemed to be spiraling out of control. She also attaches so much of her identity to her writing, so losing that is devastating to her and she feels completely out of control. And the relationships in her life are suffering as well. This has some really cute moments. I mean, the kind boy next door, Baker, can't go wrong there. But it also talks about microaggressions and the realities of being black and specifically mixed race. Tessa's mom is white and her dad is black. So if you want a sweet romance, but with some gut punches and social commentary, pick this one up. It's Happily Ever Afters by Elise Bryant. Okay, those are our first picks of 2021. What are you going to read next? I am going to read a graphic novel that looks like kind of a D&D style romp. It's called The Savage Beard of She-Dwarf by Kyle Latino. Okay. I, this isn't even a humble brag. This is a straight up brag brag. I have <laughs> the new Stephen Graham Jones, My Heart is a Chainsaw, Ooh. which is coming out in August. And it's so fantastic. It might be his best yet. It's basically like a horror movie in which this woman is trying to figure out who is picking off tourists in this town, like this lakeshore town. It's awesome. He is so prolific. Like, so prolific. Yeah. And, and like, people are just really starting to read him. Like, he's he's getting more and more popular. But if you're a Stephen Graham Jones fan... And you're like, I hate you, Liberty, for bringing this up and I can't read it yet. Check out his backlist. He has so much backlist. I mean, like a zillion novellas and short stories and like four other novels. So there's a lot to dive into while you wait for this one, which I mean, August will be here before you know it, really, if it, you know, keeps going this way. So <laughs> anyway, that's it for us today. Thank you to our sponsors. Thank you to our amazing audio editor, Jen Zink. You can drop us a line at allthebooks at bookriot.com if you want to let us know something, ask a question. Uh, you can find Danica online on Twitter at lesbrary, that's L-E-S-B-R-A-R-Y. I mostly hang out on Instagram at Franzen Comes Alive. And if you want to give us a treat, you can go to Apple Podcasts and leave a rating or review. It helps other book lovers to find us. And as much as we would love to tell you about more books today, we just don't have the time. But you can read about more titles out now in the show notes at bookriot.com slash all the books, as well as find a link to our weekly new books newsletter. And in the meantime, happy, happy reading. reading.